up, we have Chris Trump, who's joining us uh, today. He's the guru, guru of all gurus when it comes to uh, Korean natural farming. So we're super stoked to have him with us today. I guess he's, uh, there he goes. Hey, Steve. Thanks for having me. Hey, how's it going? Yeah, glad to be here. What a cool conference and props to you guys for making it all free for all these people. What a, what a cool thing. It's, uh, I was thinking about it during um, 2020 and everybody's stuck inside and started getting hay fever. And in Hawaii, a bunch of these uh, musicians did these like mini concerts at their house where they all jumped on and it was all free jack johnson participated and all these cool slacky guys and and uh it was probably one of the the coolest like online venues i think i've experienced and uh this has that feel just um dudes jumping on and it's what i got and uh yeah so props to you guys for making that happen so um, I am not a can, uh, cannabis expert or a aquaponics expert. Um, you guys are the uh, cream of the crop here. Um, I actually um, learned from uh, Mr. Leonard Wilson um, way back in the day uh, on the Big Island when I was producing um, lettuce with uh, my cannabis um, uh, kind of our facility what we built um, and so my experience in aquaponics is um, kind of small scale systems um, and um, but really for me what aquaponics was is um, I was already deep into asking microbial questions for our farm uh, in Hawaii, which was a, it is a macadamia nut farm. And um, aquaponics was kind of a shoe into the microbiolo microbiological world for me. Um, so much playing with microbes. Um, and then uh, right from there, um, jumped into um, natural farming. So the, um, yeah, I have, I have a great deal of, uh, love for aquaponics as a result. And uh, so I, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, my experience, some of my journeys, actually some of the work I did in the third world with aquaponics and still kind of participate in. Um, and then um, a little bit of kind of how to, if you wanted to have a side hustle of food, how to uh, quickly market that. Um, but really, um, uh, main thing I kind of want to bounce around and Steve, maybe, uh, if you're willing to jump in and, and kind of dialogue with me on it is I want to talk about a battery of, um, biology that, uh, we can do with, with ongoing, um, kind of brew of, uh, if you will, a side, uh, a side reservoir um, for um, microbial um, inoculation for your aquaponics. So we'll jump into that in a little bit. But um, yeah, I built a, a small commercial aquaponics system to um, as a 
big question on whether or not we were going to crop diversify on the Big Island into aquaponics and lettuce production um, and or ginger production, which in hindsight, we probably should have done. But um, we didn't. We were going to do probably, um, we were we were going really big. It was going to be basically about um, 10 acres of surface area really of aquaponics and we had it laid out and um, in the end we decided to go with um, natural farming and macadamia that's making things better but uh, the journey for me in um, food production uh, getting that you know making money was um, was a lot of fun um, so for those that might uh, have a side hustle of food with their aquaponic system, obviously cannabis is going to be uh, bigger dollars um, per pound. But if you're um, if you're turning and burning with some of these um, food products, you can you can challenge your your income on uh, aquaponic. Just throwing it out there. Um, lettuce and uh, tomato production is definitely uh, viable um, for for that. So what I did is um, is I took what I could produce, which was at that time um, mustard greens, um, baby romaine lettuce, uh, rainbow chard, and a few other things, and I took it down to the local produce vendors and. Uh, they, um, I, I had all gallon Ziploc bags of my produce and I said, here's what I can produce. Here's my number. I'm taking it to all your competition. And, uh, not, I didn't say it like that. I say, I'm taking it around to a few produce vendors today and, uh, give me a call with, um, what you think you can, uh, what you would like and, and what you'd like to pay. And, uh, I got a call that, um, that, Baby romaine lettuce for six dollars a pound um, was uh, was a go with one producer or one produce vendor, and I said, "Okay, I'll, I switched all my production over to baby romaine." Not deciding what I was going to produce food-wise until I had a buyer and uh, the price I wanted. So, um, with that baby romaine lettuce, I was able to produce um, on a little. Um, 40 foot, you know, four 40 foot troughs. So I was able to produce a hundred pounds a week of um, baby romaine lettuce, which is $600 a week um, for, for one person running an aquaponic system, which in the end um, was a bit small or kind of the economy of scale was about break even basically to pay my wages. But get out of workman's comp and, and all those things, um, you know, insurance, if you're just a private person, $600 a week for, you know, producing lettuce, the amount of work isn't full time. So pretty doable. Um, and you could definitely get more than $6 a pound for that baby remain. I loved in the tropics, Bambi by Johnny Seeds was a dope cultivar. It's my favorite. So tasty in aquaponics. I miss that actually. Um, so I also played with 
um, doing uh, aquaponics in, uh, so in the end, we, we uh, sold that system, um, got out of aquaponics and stayed in natural farming for um, macadamia production, but um, still definitely love um, aquaponics for um, so many reasons. And one being that much of the world is abandoned parking lots. And um, in China, abandoned parking lots becoming aquaponic systems has become a thing. Um, it's pretty beautiful. In uh, Nepal, um, rooftops um, in um, Kathmandu, our, um, our aquaponics production uh, facilities are, are springing up and gaining popularity um, as it is. Uh, and they're using uh, airlift um, uh, pumps for small systems to move the water because it's such a low energy draw. An air pump is a drastically lower energy draw than a water pump. And so these guys are able to spend less while producing something that brings income or food. Um, and so that's stuff I've been playing with, with some people I work with that do third world education. Um, and uh, it's a lot of fun because those spaces are not usable for um, food production in soil. Um, and so I've, I, I love aquaponics for, the, for, for a lot of reasons and uh, continue to learn um, talking to Steve and listening to his podcast. Our, our um, video cast has uh, been, been a lot of fun. Um, here's a little system. Uh, I will share my screen. Um, here's a little system we built in Haiti. in like a week or 10 days um and uh it was uh concrete troughs um we we um nailed it down to the uh to the sides with concrete screws had a uh, gravel you know system but these these um these are hanging pvc cutouts to put the little pots in um but this system's still running in Haiti and producing food in the community. Uh, they produce all kinds of things in there. Um, I think they most love the fish production. Um, do, do you have the, uh, the screen open on your screen? Because we just see the folder. Oh, you cannot see it? Sorry. I don't no know why that's not working. Resume, share. Uh, can you see it now? No. Maybe just okay, try to screen yep. instead of the window, maybe. Yeah, I got it. Now? No, it's working. Looks good now. All right, here, let me. Start over. Sorry, thought you were seeing that. So that is, yeah, 
concrete troughs. Those are um, half PVCs with cutouts. They did they did a bunch of little two inch pots and gravel bed. Um, and we cool team knocked this out really fast. Um, the first time around, they ate all the fish. Um, just didn't even wait for the plants. Just had uh, went fishing and enjoyed a good fish dinner. So we replaced the fish and now they produce a ton of food. Um, those are the guys that run it. They still run it. This is about 10 years later. And this is up in the hills in Haiti um, near Hench. Um, I have come to believe that um, aquaponics in the third world is a bit of a stretch um, because the skill to run it um, and the learning curve um, is a pretty big hurdle to overcome. Um, is that coming through there, Steve? You guys can see that all right? Yep. There's a, the, the, play, the play controls are on the screen. I don't know if that's possible to move. But. Oh, yeah. Is that better? Yep. Um, and so the, um, yeah, solid settling, um, some pump, and, um, you know, just a standard aquaponics system. Um, super fun to build and um, super cool that it works for this small community to have, you know, food production. Um, and, and they produce a ton of fish um, because it's so hot there. The tilapia go ballistic um, and them having clean water to grow them in, um, it works quite well. All right, I am going to pause share and come back. All right, can you see me again? Yep. Sweet. Um, so taking it over, um, if, um, you wanted to take your, you know, your expertise with aquaponics and share it in places where food is needed, um, I think it is very viable. It's very doable. And at the same time, some of the hurdles are definitely going to be translation expertise, um, um, yeah, and we can jump into questions. But I'm um, queuing them up there for you so that when we get to that, we have them queued. Awesome. The, um, yeah, the, there's definitely hurdles to producing food in the third world with, uh, with aquaponics. And, and really, it, it comes down to the things that you, you don't know that people don't know in the places you might go and the things that they don't have access to or the um, kind of intuitive challenges, the things that seem intuitive to you. Um, so I've done a bit of that and, um, and uh, totally cool, still happening in a lot of uh, places around the world, um, but definitely um, has its challenges. And uh, I've leaned since to, um, to soil production. And in Kathmandu, in Nepal, there is no soil access for 
much of the people that want to grow food. And so aquaponics has become the, the sole um, kind of food production tool for um, small farmers. Um, and they're using rooftops. So aquaponics saving the day in Nepal. Um, yeah. Last thing kind of that I, I knew, knew there'd be a bit of questions and good, good to dialogue about uh, microbes and aquaponics and we can get into that. Oh, I looked forever um, before I get into the microbes of um, the um, kind of talking about a, a microbe reservoir. Um, I looked forever for a good picture of the system I use to grow ginger in aquaponics, Steve, and I couldn't find it. I talked about that briefly in the um, aquaponics seminar uh, a while ago, and um, I don't think I have retained the picture, but here we go. This is me producing mugwort, and you see over here, um, can you see my cursor? No. Um, over here in the corner, tucked away. Can you see the cursor? Not at all. Yeah, we can see it. Okay, yeah. So the um, that that um, plastic basket um, is what I use. So here I'm growing mugwort um, in in some of the uh, beds, but that plastic basket is what I use to produce ginger in aquaponics. And um, I wish I had a better setup or picture of it all in production. But the, the, these baskets were, were filling basically where these floating beds are, um, the basket would be. And um, I would screw them in uh, to the side with supports, uh, two by four supports and raise them up so that they were totally out of the water while the ginger was producing um, with some shade cloths covering them. And uh, that is upside down right now, but um, black plastic um, netting or mesh um, would hold the soilless media, and uh, I produced about 200 pounds per um, per basket per year, with with no um, no work during production. So planting is work, filling the basket, but and then harvesting um, actually was extremely easy, much easier than harvesting in soil. You just dump out and rinse off a bunch of perlite and vermiculite, and um, and that was um, yeah, it was it was an incredible way to grow ginger and uh, protects it from a lot of the problems that uh, ginger runs into, like nematodes, etc. So um, yeah, they don't float. There's too much weight in them to float. So those cross those little arms there are needed to physically lift and lower. And you can create just a, a lift and lower system by screwing into the side here. And um, anyways, I loved that. Um, it could definitely be improved on. You know, somebody wanted to tee off on root crop vegetables, producing aquaponics. That is uh, something I used in the past. Um, yeah. So the thoughts I've had um, in natural farming we produce liquid IMO, um, soil microbes in a liquid brew system, just like an actively aerated compost tea. 
the key there is that you never brew longer than 36 hours um, because um, we um, you, you get this rise in micro production and then it falls off. Um, however, with if and another reason we don't produce um, using the same inoculum, people ask, hey, can we take a little bit out of there, you know, stabilize it and continue to brew with it? And the answer is no, because in uh, soil farming, we don't want to skew for um, aquatic microbes. Um, but if we wanted to maintain a population of um, diverse microbial life where the aquaponic system might ebb and flow um, or, or destabilize, um, having a aquatic um, inoculum, um, Steve's done some really great work uh, harvesting IMO2 um, in, in an aquatic version. Um, I think more we can we can do more trials with that and, and continue to play with it. But um, harvesting uh, microbes out of functioning um, aquatic systems um, like a great estuary or um, good marshland or something like that um, is a great way to get diverse microbial communities from you know soil connected waterlands or, or water water systems and um, the um, the the curiosity that I have and and what I would encourage uh, that we play with is what could we perpetuate could we um, have a microsystem um, going on um, continually with um, with diverse microbials um, alongside our aquaponic system that has a lot going on, a lot of fish and a lot of plants and soil that might skew our, our microbial diversity over time as, as things fluctuate. Um, could we get a stable um, slow drip into our aquaponic system? Basically a tiny little um, aquarium size stable um, aquatic food web um, environment where everything is geared for or cared that everything we do is for the microbes to have stability and uh, food and self-perpetuation and then just a, 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 a drip emitter that allows a little bit of that water to slowly go into the aquaponic system to help with stability for microbes um, and um, that was that's that's kind of the uh, the thought I had, Steve. What do you what do you think about that? Well, they utilize something similar for reef tanks. I mean, that's essentially what a refugium is, and a reef tank is a place for your uh, aquatic um, you know food web to to live, and your isopods and other things that can feed your coral and other things like that. So, uh, I'd, I'd never thought of about putting in an aquaponic system, but that that exact application is already done in, in other forms of aquaculture, mm -hmm. which I think is a uh, interesting idea. Um, you certainly could uh, have it where you had uh, uh, everything, you know, uh, breeding at a higher rate. I, I'm just trying to figure out how you would maintain it at that accelerated food web rate. Um, well, uh, you don't even need that much. 
you don't need to have it accelerated necessarily as long as that was your your stable place um, so that it, it could help with uh, kind of alleviate or stay away from fluctuations that naturally come in, in aquaponic systems. Anyways, that was that was the the uh, talking about water. Um, again, I haven't experimented with net, with aquaponics for uh, several years, but um, I know liquid IMO is a great great resource for uh, aquaponics. You can brew it, apply it, spray it to your plants. It helps with diverse microbes um, getting established. And you can just do that, the base natural farming recipe. Um, I have a YouTube on how to do it. It's quite easy and simple. Um, and that takes 36 hours. And you can brew that anytime you need that. And, and that already um, exists and people use it for, for aquaponics and, and introducing and reintroducing uh, good diversity in microbes. But if there was a, what did you say the words used in uh, in salt systems? A refugium? Well, so in a reef tank, they call it a refugium. Refugium. Yeah. So could, could there be a good um, use for a refugium in aquaponics with diverse, basically IMO or aquatic? Could you create a stable... Um, mini tank to slow feed your your whole system where when where that could potentially keep you from um the those those microbial fluctuations well, the thing that first comes to mind is that aquatic plants actually have a whole separate microbiome that lives only on the surfaces of aquatic plants because a lot of aquatic plants can actually mineralize and uptake nutrients through their leaf tissue separately the same way that normal terrestrial plants do through their roots they can actually absorb it directly through their stems and leaf tissue. So they actually have microbes that are adapted for that that might be separately beneficial than what would be in an aquatic environment alone. I think that that's certainly an area where I could see doing something like a, a chop, the same way that you would, you know, chop and blend fresh kelp, uh, doing something like that with maybe like a, your fresh, um, uh, grow some type of aquatic plant that has a large surface area. Uh, and then take that and make a tea or a quick blend from it or, or blend it and then use that as an inoculant um, might have some unknown beneficial effects on the root system that it's certainly a, a biological uh, diverse uh, a web that I have not had a chance to really experiment with the way I, I would like to. Well, the whole point of chatting about that briefly um, is, is just uh, in case there's some more super nerds out there that want get a better idea than uh, than uh, refugium and uh, bring it into play. I would love to hear any ideas that come off of that because it would be a, a fun thing to know about even though I'm not currently playing with it. Um, should we do some questions, Steve? Yeah, I was going to say we got a lot of questions uh, from, from chat for you. So uh, I would like to maybe hit this first one real quick. Uh, LIM, LIMO is best used for foliar and soil or in the soil of dual root zones. Um, actually, excuse me, I actually really like adding it for the mineralization tank. So where you take your fish waste and you brew that up, that's really where it's gonna have its most um, uh, largest impact because it's gonna break down that fish waste and provide and help fill in gaps that you would ha otherwise have in your aquatic food web. Also the, uh, the foliage of whatever you're growing um, is a great place for that liquid IMO to go because 
you're going to get interaction on leaf surfaces that are unique that happen just there. And so I would like to also see it um, hit getting on your, your plants foliarly and that dripping off the plants and that, that marriage of what's growing on your plants or the, the inoculum of the, your plants themselves is one of the main benefits of liquid IMO is just that basically, just like we're protected by our skin biome, plants have that same protection that occurs. Um, and you'll get some of that leaching into the system just from the, uh, the dripping into the, the root zone, um, no matter what kind of system you're running. But yeah, a big dose of healthy and diverse microbes into your um, into your biofilter or wherever you got your your bulk of um, you know fish poo, like Steve said, that's that's where you're gonna get a ton of repeat benefit, um, nutrient cycling, basically processing your nutrients into the the various things. Uh, we had another question. Um, have you used uh, lactobacillus or other ferments for honeybee feeders to help benefit honeybees? Yes. And I can give you the bee recipe uh, right now. It is a specific recipe. And what you do is you provide it. Let's see. You provide it in a reservoir that they have access to on demand um, in addition to their water. So you don't replace their water with it. Um, you provide it in addition to their water. And if you have a, oops, um, let's see. How many, oh, I need that. Okay, um, it's one to 300 BRV. Yeah, do you have a, um, hope you have a notepad. I'm just gonna spit this out. Maybe I'll type it out and put it in chat. Would that be better? Uh, I'll leave it up to you, or if you could type it out and just throw it on the screen, uh, it might be easier just in a notepad so people can have it to screenshot. <laughs> I, I just went looking for it, and what I have is it in the calculator that has all the math figured out for me. So, um, or just type it in chat. Let's say, let's say in a gallon. We'll say in a gallon. Here we go. I will. Uh, I'll do this. We will screen share it. And. So in a gallon, we would want, we'd want about a half ounce of brown rice vinegar, and we want a, um, a very small amount, a tenth of an ounce of LAB, we want five ounces of seawater, tenth of an ounce of OHN, tenth of an ounce of calcium phosphate, and mineral A you don't have. So you can just up that seawater to like 10 ounces. Um, but it's um, one to 25 seawater, one to 800 LAB, one to 300 vinegar, one to 800 OHN, one to 800 calcium phosphate, 
and one to a thousand mineral, which the same mineral that's in there is in seawater. So um, yeah, put that in your water. And uh, so what you would have is, um, here, I'll draw it. Good question. Bees love this. Another thing that's really great for bees is um, if you um, inoculate under the hives with, um, with IMO. Um, in tropical places, um, in Hawaii, for example, we deal with rove beetle which is, uh, destroys hives and rove beetle has a soil dwelling stage. And in that soil dwelling stage, they're actually really susceptible to IPMO or uh, fungal predators. And so if you have a functioning fungal ecosystem under your beehives, maybe in the grass or whatever, um, you don't have rove beetles. It's really wonderful. We did that with all our, we do about 150 hives in Hawaii and um, all of them are inoculated underneath. But um, you just have uh, your hive. Um, they have their water. And then you'd have their uh, nutrient as a optional. Very rudimentary drawing here. So you got your nutrient off to the side. Um, they have their access to their water. In the nutrient, you want to fill half of it with rocks or half cut in half corks or um, something that they can stand on because um, obviously they will drown if they, they don't have a perch to drink their nutrient. Um, and uh, yeah, good question. I hope that's helpful. I could type that out um, if that wasn't, if that was too fast for people. You got another one? Question. Um, yeah, uh, uh, this is from uh, Caleb who was just talking. Uh, are you experimenting with any new IMO inputs or sorry, KNF inputs? Uh, are any new inputs in the style of KNF thinking? Um, if so, is there uh, what is what new? If so, what new possible inputs are you playing around with? And then he also asks, "How did you get so cool?" <laughs> No, that was a pretty cool talk, that last talk. I, I think uh, I mean, you, you guys have a pretty smart community there. Um, definitely always playing with new things. I think uh, a lot of what I end up playing with now is um, customizing or, or fitting natural farming to different industries. So I'm working with the wine grape industry, giant row crops with huge mechanization um, tools and um, really taking the essence of natural farming and making sure it works with the efficiencies they already have in place or the needs they have. Um, so, you know, remo inexpensive remote brewing systems for multi-site um, liquid IMO applications and wine grapes where there's hills all different places spread out and they need uh, applications regularly but they can't be driving a whole bunch of water all over the place so we did these tote system um, liquid IMO brewers um, that were really inexpensive um, with just aeration through um, uh, 
really specific uh, um, amount of holes in um, PVC. And uh, we were getting pretty good results with um, brewing out microbes um, and a pretty simple system, just a good air blower. Um, and that's been pretty cool, fun tech. Um, new, um, yeah, I can't think off, I'm sure there's something new that we're playing with. And for some reason off the top of my head, I'm not, I'm not thinking of anything like new and exciting. Um, a lot of, yeah, a lot of customizing natural farming for different scales and types of operations, um, including third world scenarios. What were we going to say, Steve? I was going to say, do you want to touch on IPMO? I don't think not everybody has heard of that one yet. And uh, you, you're the one that turned me on to it. Uh... Sure. Yeah. So um, in Hawaii, uh, one time I had a, um, a batch of um, my, my substrate that I grow out in IMO3 uh, get full of weevils. And I was full go mode on the farm. Uh, we're farming 750 acres of macadamia nuts and I needed to produce my IMO3 that day. And I was like, man, I can't run. And I don't think the weevils are really gonna hurt anything. Produced my IMO3 and all my little weevils turned into these little white puff balls. And um, brewed liquid IMO with that, sprayed it out on the orchard and my orchard walkthrough I saw some of my predatory, uh, some of my pest beetles, these green stink bugs, as white puffballs. They were there in my orchard covered in fungus. And I said, well, that's interesting. What happened there? And so that, that caused a, a deep dive of research on who eats beetles um, in the fungal world. And... Um, realized that a lot of what eats beetles, um, a lot of these fungal predators um, exist in nature. They're abundant in nature, but not necessarily everywhere. And so by cultivating multiple collections of IMO2 um, and then growing it out on this um, chitin or carapace rich substrate, which was my weevils, um, we produced a um, kind of predatory fungal rich liquid IMO. And that caused uh, pressure on my, my pests. Um, since then, Steve's played with it um, in Zimbabwe uh, multiple times. I played with it in uh, California, actually just uh, a few months ago, uh, a couple months ago here. And, um, and we, different people have played with it. And, and uh, so far it's only anecdotal um, in that we haven't done any peer review studies, but the idea is that we are taking in any place we are and by putting um, chitin or um, the exoskeleton of, of bugs into our IMO1 for rice, um, and Steve's work in Zimbabwe, he thought that the, um, the insect frass going into the rice when you put it out was actually the best um, or most successful. And um, because then that natural environment, wherever there is a chitin eating fungi, um, there is, um, they're gonna move in and chew on that. And so you're, 
you're kind of collecting or putting out a trap for those fungal predators that um, and uh, go after beetles. But the cool thing is, about that, what I like about that, is wherever you are in the world, you can seek to cultivate um, fungal predators for beetles without having to go find an expensive um, bottle of, you know, Bavaria bassiana or something like that. You can cultivate your own fungal predators for beetles um, and, um, and use it, have it as a shelf-stable inoculum, which is pretty amazing in that IMO2 process, and then um, brew it in liquid and spray it on your crops. Um, Steve, you had a you had a remediation with um, grasshoppers, right? Yeah, we were mainly focused on large arthropods, so we were able to knock back the grasshoppers, and we actually repeated that here in Oklahoma as well this year and and last year. Uh, again, similar applications, and what we were doing is applying it not only to where our plants were, but the whole field around it, the walkways, the area around it. it, it it's a general area treatment to, to introduce those bacteria and fungi back into that area, and it's nice because you don't have to worry about it running off into the local stream because it's just a, a species that's already present in the environment. You're not going to create Absolutely. a gross imbalance in your ecosystem because you're not harvesting anything that wasn't already there. And it's a very ecologically responsible way to handle it. And something that I think really has a lot of potential for things like Africa and the Caribbean and, and other places that don't have the money, or it, it takes me 40 to 45 days to get stuff to, to the farm at Zimbabwe if it's not in country, right? So it's just, it, you know, the, it, it, I'm sure it's even worse now. So, uh, you know, it's just it, logistics alone, it, it helps reduce issues the one thing i will say is it can uh, go after your bees so do not spray it if you have stuff with a lot of flowering uh, sites or something that you you intend to have actively pollinated i would be careful utilizing it right around the flower structures because it will infect bees uh, i have observed that uh, at a small scale uh, not a huge die-off or anything it didn't wipe out the hive but um, we did find some that were dead on the ground uh, in the same field as our applications so to speak to that, I think the bees are going to be at risk of getting applied onto. So if you spray them, they're at risk. Um, bees are actually pretty capable of cleaning themselves. They do a, they do their, anyways, um, that, that, uh, that, that process of visiting flowers, et cetera, they, they do a, um, a pretty good job of, of kind of um, self-care. Um, so bees are going to be, I would, I would venture, this is my best guess. Um, and, uh, I think an entomologist would be better to speak to the, the absolutes, but, um, that bees are going to be most at risk of being sprayed directly or being coated or knocked down by this. Um, whereas if they're, um, if it's in your environment, it's been a few days, um, your beetles, most of them are going to have a, um, a ground dwelling stage or a plate at a time where they're in the ground. They become extremely susceptible, whereas bees are going to be able to um, kind of stay above it, if you will. But yeah, spraying a hive is going to be probably be problem problematic. Awesome. Um, we have, uh, let's see what other questions we have here in the queue. Um, uh, has Chris experimented using sheep and goat milk uh, instead of cow milk? And does it make a difference for uh, lactobacillus? Uh, all milk works. Even that uh, stuff that you don't have to refrigerate works. Um, bean milk works. 
Um, powdered milk, rehydrated works. Um, it all works. Uh, coconut milk does not work very well. Um, so a lot of the plant-based milks, um, there's limited success, but all, all your animal milks, um, human, et cetera, all of it is successful. Um, but if, if you're a cannabis grower and you're doing the plant-based uh, labs, you can actually make uh, vegan cheese, which actually is legal to do uh, medicated legal cheese in the U.S. You can't do dairy-based, but you can do non-dairy-based. So it is a, a legal way to make infused cheese if you, or medicated cheese if you are looking to do it. And if you are doing vegan, uh, really, really successful with a really great cheese, garbanzo beans. Garbanzo bean milk is very successful, beautiful curd. Um, yeah. Also awesome for gluten-free pastries. <laughs> there you go. Um, Soulshine asks, could FAA possibly harbor fifth pa fish pathogens? Um, I will defer to you, Steve, but my thought would be very unlikely because of the process, this one-year breakdown process there is um, very, very little for them to go on if there is a pathogen and the outcompeting that's gonna happen with the inoculation of IMO um, into a properly made FAA is going to consume a lot of kind of non-symbiotic um, materials. Well, the, the only pathogens you really have to worry about getting from your fish would be like streptococcus, tuberculosis, E. coli, and salmonella. Uh, would kind of be the big four you'd be concerned about, but all of those would not, they would not be able to handle that long-term, um, you know, environment that you have in that FAA process alone, uh, better yet, uh, all the other, again, microbes. In fact, there's quite a bit of research now, and you're going to see some published stuff here in the next year or two around lactobacillus being used for uh, food safety, uh, specifically for treating uh, non-human pathogenic E. coli in living aquaponic systems. I myself have used it to treat three separate systems that were commercially operating uh, for non-human pathogenic E. coli. We were able to treat them with labs and have have it be undetectable after 30 days of treatment. So, um, and it might be two weeks, we don't know, but we were able to get it completely to zero uh, with just 30 days worth of treatment at a one to 1,000 dosing ratio in the system. So it's not even like we're doing anything beyond a normal maintenance dosage. It's just, you know, having the right microbes present uh, eliminates that, you know, that issue. So, and I truly think, you know, five or 10 years from now, you're going to see lactobacillus dosing, you know, required for food safety protocols for uh, uh, aquaponic and, and hydroponic systems because of how well it can outcompete many of the pathogens that do make us sick. So I think that's definitely something that I, I really look forward to. Um, I really hope that, yeah, LAB treatment is, becomes a part of food safety throughout the entire system, through the whole food world. We, we uh, have these water sorters in, in um, macadamia nut production and they can get funky and, and there's a, a worry that they can produce mold or foster. And it's like a little LAB in that recirculating system and you have no issues, you know, it'll keep things clean. And, and it's like, that's, but, um, you know, we, we got off as, as humans onto um, pasteurization being the, the way for food safe things. And uh, really we need, um, we need balance. Um, eventually um 
Question from Gingerbug. I would love to know more about the differences in inoculation methods between aquaponics and soil. And um, I think that by and large, there's very little difference to inoculate aquaponics and soil as far as you're bringing it in or just introducing it uh, one way or another. And it has it a life of its own from there. So a small small amount that then goes and can self-perpetuate. The idea in both systems is that we're introducing something that does well in that environment or that is good for that environment and therefore thrives. And so um, both systems, um, a little goes a long way. And, um, and you know, Steve, Steve was talking about it being a great place to put a liquid IMO being the settling tank or the, um, the place where your biofilter, where your, your fish poop builds up. Um, and in, in soil being the drip line or the area around the plants where they eat being the most bang for your buck kind of um, application spot. But we, when I look at treating soil applications, I look at treating the whole acre, meaning I want the top of the tree or the top of the plant, the stem of the plant, the soil around it, the grass and the borders, you know, I want everything to be touched. Um, and I think in aquaponics, generally, if we have good going in as an inoculum, we would want the whole system kind of touched by that. Would you agree? Oh, yeah. Yep. No, and there isn't a huge difference as far as inoculating. Maybe slight differences in dosing and things like that. Or also be mindful when you dose labs into aquaponics systems, it will bring your pH down 0.2 to 0.3. Uh, parts. Uh, uh, so be mindful of that. Um, it can be beneficial because then you can go ahead and add a little pH up to add a little nutrients, uh, you know, calcium carbonate or potassium silicate, or you can use that as an organic uh, certifiable pH down. You know, there, uh, labs is absolutely allowed in organic certified systems. It's been approved at many different facilities now. Um, and you absolutely can use it as a, a natural way to have a pH down for your, you know, whatever solution that you're working on. Um, and if you are going to add LAB for um, aquaponics, you can take a, a small bit, um, you know, a little bit um, and put it in a five gallon bucket with some brown sugar and aerate it overnight. And um, if you're trying to get a big kind of um, clarification or um, you, you want it to process a bunch of food, um, getting it... Um, keeping it isolated, putting it on some food overnight with some air. Um, and we get a lot more kind of immediate um, multiplication, whereas sometimes it can kind of disperse and, and pitter out um, if you just put a tiny bit into aquaponics. So that is one way to cause your LAB to go a little further if it, in fact, is a limited resource for you. Maybe you're not making a ton of the time or something like that. So. That is something that has been played with in Hawaii a bit in aquaponics to great success. Another question here, uh, uh, how, are, how is IMO uh, quantified post-application? Do you have a way to classify different IMO collections? Um, and then how do, you, how do cultures know that they're applied uh, are properly, um, uh, I guess, the beneficial? Uh, and you've talked about this quite extensively. You have a great talk, a long format talk on this. It's about 40 minutes on your YouTube channel as well. But do you want to 
uh, answer that one because it's definitely a question I hear a lot. Yeah. Um, so quantifying what is established um, if we were looking at species, etc., would require DNA mapping. Um, that is a project I am continually working on in, with, with any and all universities that will um, partner or, um, you know, any doctors that are connected and can do that DNA mapping. This is the question I'm asking. How best can we um, quantify what we're moving from your indigenous soil environment to final establishment in our farmland through the IMO process. One, two, three, four, establishment. What is the diversity lost? Um, how best can we foster maximum diversity in that transfer and permanent establishment? I wanna ask that question as much as you do in a very much um, mapped and documented scientific manner. That said, um, I can speak to what we know about how nature works um, without that data all in my pocket. Uh, we did a project with MIT to ask those questions um, due to some unique circumstances with the doctor that was running it. Um, that pittered out and there wasn't enough money to restart it. So um, we got a few bits of data on bacteria um, from a sample here and there and uh, they never mapped the fungi. Um, so that was really disappointing. That was a lot of work. It was a really cool project um, and nothing to show for it. Um, but indigenous microbes. So in our local environment, once we get um, a bloom of your um, positive, you know, what, what we see and know as large hyphal diameter fungi, big, you know, you know, four micrometers or bigger fungi growing out on substrate and then growing out in our ag land as a result of application. Um, for example, we can have ag land that we do a um, microbial analysis before. This is one kind of way, it costs about a hundred, it'll be 200 bucks for a farmer. Um, you do a full kind of microbe lab, send it off to your favorite microbial lab. Um, I use Earthboard often just because they're convenient and easy, um, but there's a bunch of great microbe labs um, and you send them off um, and uh, get a good snapshot. I did that actually just right here with a grass hay farmer. Uh, this is my website, see you showing, thanks. Um, I did that here with a grass hay farmer. We did their before microbial analysis and their after microbial analysis to see what level of um, introduction and establishment we got over two years. And uh, it's a great way to, to know just how well you established diversity, um, you know, what kind of fungi, et cetera. And um, yeah, so um, that is one way if you wanna spend a little money, otherwise just getting good collections from indigenous places it all, we already know, especially if it's an untouched thousand year old untouched space, we already know that those microbes like your temperature, your barometric pressure, your rainfall, your 
um, altitude. And so they're going to self-perpetuate in that soil as long as you don't destroy or disturb them. Awesome. Well, uh, thanks yeah. so much for coming on, man. How can people find you? It's been a, an awesome hour of education with you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, I am on Instagram at Soil Steward. Um, my website is ChrisTrump.com. Um, you can search Chris Trump on YouTube. And I am, if I can uh, get it together to finish a little bit more video editing, I am adding my final 10 hours of content to my online class. Um, and with this addition, I feel like it is a complete educational uh, package to really get you started, but not only started, really introduced the understanding of all that's going on in natural farming and how best to use it. So that's available online on my website um, at chrisstrump.com. And, um, and November, um, uh, end of November here, I forgot the date offhand, but we have our first live Q&A for all those online students. Um, so we'll, we'll jump on a Zoom call together and be able to just dialogue with everybody's unique scenarios, kind of like this, but private um, for um, just for natural farming students of that online class. So thanks, Steve. Thank you. Yeah, this is a, this is a great spot. I'll, uh, I'll keep watching. Awesome. Well, thanks a lot. And uh...